Yeah. 106.5 WPPM. Philly. Black triples on deck. Hear the wreck to set. The best that it gets. Let's go, go. Come on. Coming at you with hurricane force. Intense as a landslide. Cool as a slap on the black hand side. Exceptional collective. The tribe of five. The source to put forth the liveest vibe. The place to go when you search and seek. For some space to satisfy your urban geek. Prude city dudes or suburban freaks. We the perfect break for your working week. Live on the set from the home of Philly Cam. All across the airwaves to all my Philly fam. Direct and effective five-headed Philly clan. All around the world we rep for Philly, man. Shout out to all my geeks and nerds. Black Tribbles is here and what we speak is heard. Come and get a taste of the Thursday night flavors. Spider traces, phases, and lightsabers. We created a council, formed a federation. Metropolis, Gotham, New York, all across the nation. Choose your designation. Get indoctrinated. Take the oath of allegiance. Increase the population. One triple, two triple, three triple, four. Five triples combined to make millions more. The people power to the media. Let's get online. It's our time to shine with black triples. Prime, prime, prime. Coming to you from the beautiful studios of WPPMLP 106.5 FM. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, cats and kittens, children of all ages, welcome to our final night inside the lovely confines of Octavia City. Yes. Holla at your boy, this is Len, a.k.a. The Bat Tribble. And as always, I am joined in this lovely studio by... The Fire Revolution. I'm going to sit there and fan it. I'm trying to leave my people off this planet. What's up? It's your girl, Kennedy, also known as that Mikey Chick, better known as Storm Tribble. Hi! Hey, girl, hi. Hi, girl, hi! <laughs> How are yums? Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it's uh, it's just Papa and Mama Tribble in the building Aww. tonight. Kids are bad. The kids are. <laughs> we we put enough cough syrup in their in their bottles so that they're not going to wake up for a couple hours. We're good. Yeah. We can focus. <laughs> we gave them gave them a health, healthy dose of Acrite so they. <laughs> you like that? With a little sprinkling of stink eye on top, just in case. Just in case. Oh man. Um, but nevertheless, we are going to have fun tonight, ladies and gentlemen, as we bid adieu to Octavia's city in style yep. we are actually going to um, along with an original story from Kennedy that's me and an original story from me that's you Len we are also going to ha- uh, be doing a very special reading from Binti a novella released out in 2015 by acclaimed award-winning science fiction author Enneti Okorafor. I can't wait to dip my uh, tongue around the words that she has written. Wow, that almost went really. I didn't know where you were going with that. I'm glad you finished your sentence. <laughs> I was about to be like, wait a minute now. This is still a... 
<laughs> PG show. Let's hold on. Just because the kid's in bed. I mean, his triples after dark just yet. Not <laughs> yet. Not yet. But the phone lines are open, ladies and gentlemen. Hit us up. 215-976. Excuse me. 923-9776. That's 215-923-WPPM. As always, you can follow the Black Tribbles. We are streaming live and direct on phillycam.org slash radio, as well as pumping live on your radio speakers at 106.5 FM. People Powered Media doing big things. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Black Tribbles, as well as on Instagram and on Tumblr. We gave Isaiah our Facebook Live jockey the night, the night off. Live jockey. I wonder if there's something I could do, because I've got my computer here. I brought my machine out. I wonder if there's Uh-oh. a way I could stream something. Uh-oh. I don't, I don't but I'm not, on the, I'm not on the book. Oh, yeah, that's right. You're not on, you're not on the book. Thank God. I took the, I took the red pill, and uh, it feels good. It feels good. See, but that's very misleading for some people because you actually, your profile is still there. In fact, I think you it's, have two profiles. It shouldn't be. I went through the whole rigmarole to delete and deactivate both of those accounts because you mm-hmm. can't just deactivate an account on Facebook. You have to, like, wait a week for them to de- deactivate the URL and all the stuff that goes along with that. Um, it's a process. Which is, I, which I don't like it. I don't like that at all. I just want to unplug, all right? <laughs> I know, I know. I know it is very misleading, but Kennedy is uh, big time up on Instagram. And even though we're celebrating the world of Afrofuturism, which uh, is definitely steeped in science, um, Kennedy got a whole lot of love on Instagram from your visit to the kickoff to the Philadelphia Science Festival. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. I took uh, Renaissance Tribble with me Mm -hmm. uh, because he is uh, the cream of the crop when it comes to getting social media footage i don't know what this dude does but somehow he gets all the likes (laughs) all the time so i'm like he must be doing something right with how he's shooting so come with me and and see what we can do and um it was nice it was a a, a amalgamation of uh the kickoff party as usual for the philadelphia science festival um but they piggybacked it on top of the science after hours which is the monthly uh 21 and up event that the Franklin Institute hosts every month. And uh, every month there's usually a different theme. And uh, this month's Science After Hours happened to be prom. Prom? Prom was the theme. So people were like, like it was like you were going to a prom? Yeah. Interesting. So everybody got dressed up. Um, Oh, so that's why you were all like bedazzled out. I had my my gown on. Mm I had a gown on. It was nice. Um, And... uh, yeah, it was. I I gotta say the 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 year that you and I went, I think to the kickoff fest, the kickoff party at the Franklin Institute, Len, I think was probably the best one I've seen since and prior because we went to one before that that was cool, but it wasn't that cool. Like that yeah. was like yeah, that was cool, cool. You know what I mean? So maybe my my perception's a little skewed because that that one that you and I went to was so epic that this is like the bar was set high. Um, but that being said, you know, just when I thought that I had seen all there was to see, there's a whole other new wing, or maybe it's not new, it's new to me, of the Franklin Institute that I had never been in before. Really? Um, it's like a brain neuroscience section. So just like the Franklin Institute is famous for the two-story replica of the heart that you can run through, that all of us have run through at one point in our lives growing of up in course. the city. Well, they've got this whole brain section now that talks about the mechanics of how the human brain works or how brains work in general because it wasn't just human brains they had 
uh, samples of animal brains in there and you could see a spinal cord and gave you the rundown of exactly what a neuron does and its lifespan and all that stuff. And that sounds really there cool. was a literal section of <laughs> it looks was like a giant grown up jungle gym, essentially. It was like a synapse. And you, as the person traveling through all of these nooks and crannies, were to simulate the, the, uh, the energy that a neuron needs to exert to get from one place to the other. Yeah. And there was no warning. You know, everybody had been drinking. Okay. Oh, Lord. So we go into this place <laughs> and everybody's dressed. Okay. Right. Some more so than others, but everybody's dressed. So the women had on their heels and the men had on their nice shoes and they go into this room and the ground is spongy. Mm-hmm. So it's already like, wait, what? It's dark. They got this light show going on. Sometimes it's super bright. Sometimes it isn't. And they have the information of what you're doing. But essentially, you climb into this little nook and you climb through these these platforms and through these, these uh, it almost looked like steel cable fences. So they were malleable. You could push on them, but right. they weren't going to break. Right. Um, and figure out your way through this maze, essentially, this jungle gym. And it was ridiculous because we because <laughs> we're all adults you know what i mean there's no right. kids running around so it's one thing when you're doing that kind of stuff around a group of kids and the children are just being children you got to watch out for them make sure you don't step on nobody but as adults you know we're all women are holding their skirts and oh maybe i shouldn't have worn a heel in here and people got <laughs> their drinks with them too so it was i ain't spilling their drink no nobody spilled their drinks so that was some professional alcoholism i gotta say <laughs> but it was definitely like what is going on now? So that was a whole new experience for us. And I, I definitely enjoyed it. Renaissance Triple enjoyed it. I hope that folks who saw it on social media uh, enjoyed it. They seem to enjoy it. Because we, we just had a good old time. There's a cool picture of you, and I and, uh, leave it to you, the actress and you, playing it up, where you're standing on top of one of those like 3D paintings or chalk yeah, 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 on, yeah, on the yeah. ground. And it's, uh, the, the painting is of like a water spout blowing up a, a manhole, and you're standing on the manhole, you know, like playfully holding your, mm-hmm. your, your dress up and everything. That got a lot of play. That, that looked really cool. Yeah, it was neat. That, that was all part of this brain section. So they talked that about. That was in the brain section. Yeah, because really. they talked about perception you know and because think about all the things that the brain controls right it regulates your your bodily functions your involved your involuntary stuff like breathing heart pumping moving all of that stuff right um in the electrochemical stuff that goes along with all of that but then also you know how we perceive things our our cognitive abilities our psychiatric abilities Mm -hmm. um and and everything that goes along with it so they had lots of illusion parts and and things that played with perception and and it was just really well thought out and, and fleshed out. And I had no idea that that was there. Um, so being, I mean, because growing up, my family had a membership to the Franklin Institute. So there's very little of that museum that I'm not familiar with. So to, to see a whole new portion of that um, was really, really quite incredible. And it also put some things into perspective, too, because they were talking about there was the kinetic uh, science, the whole physics part of that was separate from the brain part where you can play with toys and lift things and right. and see how certain things are more difficult and under certain situations or what have you right and i i kid you not len they had a section of toys that you know operated on kinetic energy older toys like dominoes and slinkies and yo-yos and stuff like that okay and as i'm looking at it i was like holy cats they got slinkies in a museum now yeah like slinkies dominoes like i said yo-yos uh, uh, Jacob's Ladder, you know, those ladders, those looks like a little book of wood that you turn one way and, the, and it opens up. Yeah. And, uh, Spirograph. Remember Spirographs? I, b- 
vaguely remember Spiral Crash. Oh, yeah, that's when you put the pencil in like the little um in the joint, the little spinny thing, the little spittle thing. You kind of like draw, and, and it just takes you around. Yeah, and you're drawing funky. vectors essentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah, in a museum. Oh wow. In wow. a museum. Talk about throwback. Yo, I was like, hey, Slakey, wait, this is in a museum. <laughs> <laughs> like, you go to museums and you're expecting to run into things that you don't have access to because of whatever reason, but also mainly because of time. Museums yeah. think old th- things, things that you can't get anywhere else. And here's a Slinky in a museum. That's a, it, yeah, and it's not a toy museum. This is a science right. museum. Right. You know what I mean? That's that's the and and that speaks to as cool as like, you know, the video games and things are, of today are. It, it, that was something just so simple just taking basic science. You not even realize, you don't even when you're playing with it, you don't appreciate the um what you're learning. Uh, just from that motion of putting the pen in there, just watching the slinky walk itself down the stairs, or even figuring out how to get it to walk down the steps. Yeah, because exactly. at first you can't; it doesn't always go. Okay, well, what do I, do I need to place it in a certain way in order for this uh, built-up energy, this kinetic en- or this potential energy? Excuse me, because there's a difference. Kinetic, kin- uh, uh, kinetic energy is the stuff that's already moving. Potential right. energy is the stuff that has the ability to move. If right. it's if enough uh, force or inertia or outside you know influences are introduced to it you have to figure out okay it, it'll go down to this one step but then it stops mm-hmm. so what am i doing wrong do i need to move it up so that 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 energy has a place to release is it the steps are too big or the steps too narrow Should like, i put it on an escalator <laughs> and then hope that i can catch it in enough time yo could you imagine this slinky on an escalator it just stays on the one step yo there's gonna be tribbles out there gonna try that now <laughs> I can, I, I can see it on YouTube now. I heard Black Triples say that you could put a slinky on an escalator. And Black Triples is my go-to source for science and nerdery and edutainment. So whatever they say, I'm going to do. <laughs> it must be so. Because <laughs> Storm Triple said so. I'm saying. And Black Triple co-signing. You know, they don't never agree on nothing. So that must be... <laughs> That must be it. You know, that's right. Yeah, they don't agree. With that. It's just true. It's true. Let's see. Let's see. <laughs> go, Slinky, go. <laughs> but that's dope. It, so it sounds like it was a fantastic time that you had there. That's really cool, man. So other things happened, right? Since the last time we were here on the show, you celebrated your birthday. Oh, Jesus. You had a big old party. I don't know if you and Triple Nation know, but our very own personal Bruce Chala Wayne (laughs) (laughs) or Chala Bruce Chaka, however you want to, you know, make that work. Our very own Bat Tribble turned the big 5-0 this year. Yeah. 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 Nobody believes it, by the way. What do you mean nobody believes it? Nobody believes it. I've got got plenty of gray. (laughs) Yeah, but so a lot of people have gray. Some people gray early. Some people bald early. That don't mean nothing. Very true. A lot of people, but your, your skin ain't cracked all up, though. You could go for a solid 45, bro. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, yeah, we had a good time. I had a, I had a party on um, Sunday. Uh, friends and family were there at a lovely spot. In the intimate, romantic 
visions. It's right on. Yeah, you, you, you're thinking like that's where you what had your birthday kind of party. party was this? Exactly right. It's right on Germantown Avenue, in um, kind of like right on that cusp of, of Mount Airy and Germantown. Um, and uh, it, it's very nondescript to look outside. It's like right on the corner of Germantown and Carpenter Lane. But when you go inside, it is just funky. It is just hmm. mad funky. And it's it's a lot. And, and, and it's, it's literally the TARDIS. It is so much larger on the inside. Oh, really? Yeah, it yeah is. Mary Poppins carpet bag. And it's got like like nice little nooks and crannies and, and, and leather seats and a lounge area here and, and, and fly artwork all over the place and uh, beautiful... Um, a uh, beautiful uh, uh, architecture throughout it, and the owner of the hall, uh, Irv Irv Riley, but he goes by Chef Riley. He, he is also the the cook, so they do the um, catering themselves as well. Nice, and they cook it right there in house. Well, his kitchen is kind of small in there, so I got a funny feeling. He cooks it someplace else and then brings it there. Mm-hmm. You know, spruces it up. But he cooks the. He, he, he does the catering and everything and it was it was just fantastic the food was like banging like all the food was banging but to be honest I was crushing on my man's string beans string beans yeah yeah, cause those string beans was they was life he put his toe in them he put he put put everything in them joints we got a phone call hey we got a phone call. We they got a like phone us. Call. They really like us. They want to listen to us. Oh, that's crazy. All right, so. Um, <laughs> Who knew after six years in the air that people wouldn't want to listen? Exactly. <laughs> All right, so let's see if this works. Hello, caller. You're live on Black Dribbles. Who's this? Hello, caller. Hello, hello, hello. All right, they're calling again. Let's see. I've got the phone. This is, uh. oh, you know what? I hit the wrong button. There you go. All right, now we go. Hello, caller. You're live on Black Tribbles. Who's this? Hey, this is New You, Tribble. Yo, what's up? Hey. <laughs> what's up? What's up, man? How you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing tonight? Oh, we are doing fantastic. We are here on our last days in Octavia City, our tribute to Afrofuturism and the legacy of Octavia Butler. And we're just sitting back, just cooling out before we get into our, our little reading of some Afrofuturistic tales and everything. What you getting into, bruh? Well, I heard you talking about Spirograph, and you just got me going. Really? You have one of those? Oh, yeah, Spirograph, and my favorite was Bermuda Triangle game. Oh, I don't see. I remember the game. I remember, like, the commercials for the game, but I don't think I ever played the Bermuda Triangle game. Oh, that was not a nice game because, you know, that cloud came over your ship, and then when that cloud went away, your ship was gone. Ooh. Is this is a board game? What is the Bermuda Triangle? Yeah, game? this is a board game from the seventies. Wow, I I, I remember I remember seeing the commercials for it, but I never I never had it. Oh, it's a shady game. Ooh, can people find it? Like, is it an eBay, Amazon type deal? Or? Yeah, yeah, totally. I just saw it at the uh, Camden Comic Con thing or whatever last week, couple weeks ago. Nice. Wow, I, I see see that that would be cool. That would yeah, that would be really cool, man. I I, I can imagine that. But go ahead. You know, a little birdie flew in my window and said that it was Bat Tribble's birthday last week, so I just wanted to say happy belated. Oh, look at all this love you're getting, Pop-Pop. I mean, Len. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I just... Thank you. Thank you. You are quite welcome. Thank thank you, new you, Tribble, a.k.a. Okay, I'm going to stay on listening, so let's hear some more. Thank you. Thank you. Talk to you later. Peace. 
Oh man, it's new U Triple AK. Bermuda Triangle game. Yeah, man. They, 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 I mean, but you know, the seventies were just like the eighties and nineties. You know, something hot happens, and all of a sudden they they find a way to market it. So there was the Bermuda Triangle game. There was, um, I think, even like if you go, well, think about it. You're big into NASA and everything like that. Yes. When the space race was really a thing, Mm -hmm. you know, think about how many kids were always getting like the toy trucks or the toy trains and everything like that. In the 60s and the early 70s. All rockets. You were getting rockets. You know, you were getting like your rocket. Cause you 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 can see videos of, of kids like in the, their backyards, like shooting off rockets in their bottle rockets. Yeah, you know, and um, or the, the astronauts were your real life hero. Those were your cowboys of the early seventies. They're still my cowboys. Think about it. Six million dollar man. He was an astronaut. Was he? Yeah. I never watched that show. Well, sorry, Lynn. You you weren't here, so no, I did. But there's a lot of stuff that I wasn't here for that I still watch. That just wasn't one of them. You, you've actually missed nothing. <laughs> but you always talk about the six million dollar man. Like you speak so highly of it. Like I feel like I'm missing something. Because there are some things that when you were you were young and you watched them, you're like, oh my god, this was really cool. But then when you return to them, you're like, eh, okay, mm. you know, ten year old Len like that. 50-year-old Len just likes thinking about 10-year-old Len liking that. I, I totally know what you mean. I went back recently and started watching Thundercats. Not recently, but a couple months ago. Went back and because they're all on Amazon. So I was like, yeah, boy, here right, we go. Right. It's a really slow show. Yeah, man. It's a really slow show. I have been recently binging because it's on Netflix. Mm-hmm. All of the real Ghostbusters. Yeah, that's hard too. I got hype. I couldn't get through the first episode. I was like, mm. yeah, because like, <laughs> because I was looking. I was like, like I was on like episode twenty eight of the first season. I was like, how long was this first season? The first season was like about sixty something episodes. You know mm. what I mean? But that's because as subsequent episode, subsequent seasons there were only like nine new new episodes and stuff like that. But it really wasn't up really wasn't until like about episode 32 that that show really got its groove mm-hmm. and got down with like maybe two to three solid animation houses but up until then oh it was rough yeah it was rough. if it wasn't for that i had it on binging while i was actually doing something else mm-hmm. i would have never made it through that stuff yeah i mm, i would have never made it through all right ladies and gentlemen um hey We're in Octavia City. Oh, still, yes. We're celebrating everything Afrofuturistic. I think I might buy a house here. Hey, why like not? the school system. Um, and if you Taxes do, are low. If you do, have a, if you do buy a house here um, and you want to sit out on your veranda and chill. Ew, not the porch now. No, on the veranda. The veranda. There's only verandas in Octavia City. Yes, quite rather. When you're out there. <laughs> when you're out there and you're just chilling and you wanted something really cool to listen to because, you know, the Black Tribbles have, have gone off, um, you know, something you can listen to is the Dope Science Show with Science with, Science with Steph. Um, go to thedopescienceshow.com. Uh, Stephanie Lowe, if I, I think I got her name correctly, she is just somebody who just, in a, at a younger age, and I think in part to battle with... Um, some early troubles she had with dyslexia mm-hmm. found her way to loving science and um, 
use that as a vehicle to kind of like deal with her dyslexia and that just opened up a world into exploration and wanting to learn more about science um so much so that even at a young age a, a younger age with absolutely zero experience she went and sit, confidently submitted an application to be the project manager at a nuclear power plant <laughs> i like nuclear hey you need you need management i like projects what's up what y'all about to do up in here y'all trying to splice something i like splicing what's up what y'all want to do power show me the cord i'll plug it in i plugs it in what you need <laughs> You know, we need three home, three whole prong. What you need? What? Oh, you got one of the fancy European joints. That's all right. I got an adapter, boo. Let's go. I got adapters for days. What's up? What? What's up? I'm a can do. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> what can I do for you? What can nuclear do for you? <laughs> I don't know. We gonna find out today. We gonna learn today. That's right. That's right. And that's you know, it's funny you say that because that's like almost to the to the uh, to the letter of what she says at the top of every show. Let's let's learn together. Yay! Uh, um, uh, as she celebrates science with all of her guests, I think she's only up to like a episode like 25 or something like that um but it's a very cool she has a very cool show very infectious personality and um uh, a curious uh, uh mind that really just drags you along uh when you're listening to the show so i encourage everybody to go check out the dope science show uh, dope science show.com uh science with stephanie or well, science with steph you know so science with steph tribble Nice. There you go, um, and that's a that's a free plug. I just liked it, so I just wanted to give her give her a shout out. You know who else gets a shout out? Oh, I right. who? Karama. It's not Karama. Oh, excuse me, Karama. Karama. Excuse me, Karama. The blurred girl. Yup. Now, why are we shouting out the blurred girl? Um, obviously because she's one of the two hundred most influential black women in technology right now. Hush your mouth. Up shoe. I tells the truth. I tell you what. <laughs> I tells no lies. I speaks only verisimilitude. Really? Yup. Now, when did this? When did this take place? When did this come to pass? Uh, this week. This week, oh yeah, I because it's been plastered all over social media. Social media, everywhere I look, I see her face, and I'm just like, what's she? What's going on here? Top 200 tech black women. First of all, shout out to the fact that there's at least 200 top black women in tech. How about that? That's that's you know substantial in and of itself. But to know that a friend of the triple family, dare I say, a member of the extended triple, she's like the triple cousins, right? Mm-hmm. Is counted amongst this black excellence, not black excellence, black excellence. I know. It's fantastic. That is that is so dope. The two hundred black women in tech to follow on Twitter, and the blurred girl is one of them. Well, I've said it. I've said it to her face, and I'll say it right here on these recorded, uh, this recorded show right now. That um, in uh, over, the, I probably over the course of like the last year. You know, Karama has become not only just a friend to the show, but kind of like a really like cool friend with a, a bunch of us here on the show. Yeah. You know, um, uh, and and she is someone whose advice I've come to lean on um, more than on a couple of occasions, uh, and who who's just her her her. Sp- 
spirit sometimes it, like keeps keeps me going. I've told her mm-hmm. about uh, the one picture that she had that I had. I don't care about this. I know that you know Chuck Chuck Collins, the artist of Bounce, did this like little fly little logo for her with mm-hmm. her, with mm-hmm. her face mm-hmm. with all her hair all out, and it's cute. It's cute mm-hmm. and stuff. But mm-hmm. that ain't my blurred girl. My blurred girl is her original photo with her just like behind her face, half hidden by a cup. And her eyes just popping out. That picture gives me life. I swear to God. You hear that, Chuck? Len's coming for you. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm I'm good, Chuck. Len said you're trash. I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. We all know Chuck ain't trash. Chuck does an amazing work on Bounce. Chuck is that dude. Amazing work on Bounce. But this is about the Blur Girl. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is about the Blur Girl. This is about uh, Caramel, who has now recently become the... um, graphic uh graphic directing uh what's what's the title graphic the lead graphic artist for universal FanCon. nice yeah, she's um putting she is like like she is shutting it down with what she's doing it the whole universal FanCon um squad has got got a great thing going really looking forward to that when that um uh, pops off next year, next uh, April in Baltimore. They're lining up guests left and right. You know, they they just uh, recently announced that um, Samurai Triple, Phil Lamar, yep. is going to be at um, at Universal. Fan I Con. would be considerably less nerdy this time if we get the opportunity to talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> you know we gotta run that. We gotta rerun that. We really don't. We do. Oh, the foot. Not the. We didn't get a video of that, did we? Yes, we did. Oh, we don't. They don't need to see it. Why not? They don't. They don't. They can hear it. They can listen to it. You can hear it. They don't. They don't need to see <laughs> me go full nerd. That's uh embarrassing. It was a cool interview though. He was very gracious, and he's a very cool dude. And and that's a big big get for Universal FanCon, um, and I know that they are working tirelessly to sign even more mm-hmm. um, stars there. Didn't they sign them? Um, I know there's some folks we can't talk about. There's some people we can't talk about. They signed Orlando Jones. Okay, that's what I was going to I'm so hype! <laughs> Yo! I can't wait! Like, that's another one I have to be, like, careful not to nerd all over. Really? Yeah. Orlando Jones has been funny since since forever like i was a fan of his on on mad tv um but i also like his rare but often poignant serious work yeah his dramatic work is pretty dope his dramatic work is solid i i really enjoyed him in the time machine believe it or not remember that god awful movie he was great oh yeah he was great in the time machine yeah that's right um and even though drumline is he was fantastic in that too he was the best part of that movie so you know i i definitely and you know who else i love him in Bedazzled, the remake. Yes. Okay, I didn't. I know that he was in it. I haven't. Se- I didn't see it though. You was didn't see the-, the remake of Bedazzled. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Um, it's slightly dated at this point, but only because you Can't know. Can't be as dated as the original though. No, no, no. <laughs> but only because you know, even though that was made in the what late nineties, early two yeah. thousands. Yeah. That was still enough time that you're like, oh wow, I guess that was about 10, 15 years ago at this right, point. Right. Um, every situation that. Brendan Fraser's character was in all the you know the different lives I guess for lack of a better term mm-hmm. his chorus right the group of people closest to him also made appearances in these different reiterations of things and it really gave those actors an opportunity to flex you know all of those actors had really strong character driven backgrounds so all of them you know could bounce back and forth between being you know a beach jock to being, you know, a Colombian drug lord, being, uh, you know, civilized, you know, uh, uh, 
member of society. So it was right. cool to see not only Brendan Fraser flex those muscles when he was able to do so, but also just the strength of that ensemble behind it right. was, uh, you know, the best part about Bedazzled to me. And Orlando Jones was in it. And he was just, you know, those some comedic actors can be funny from the back without saying nothing. Yeah. And they pull all the attention <laughs> from the rest of the people that are have all these lines and are doing all this stuff. That was him. He was constantly pulling focus from the people who had, you know, the the focus of the screen or the scene rather. He was just in the back chilling, just being hilarious without doing much. I was like, yo, this dude is everything. I can't wait. And I'm so glad that he's playing um Anansi the Spider for American Gods. I can't wait for American Gods. American Gods was such a good book. Yeah. You never finished it? Or you no. never started? I did start it. I never finished it. American Gods was good i like the nancy boys better which is the sequel but i also read them out of sequence so that has a lot to do with it but yeah i really liked american gods i'm looking forward to that that, that kicks off on stars i think on the 30th yeah this weekend yeah that's like why i got stars <laughs> just, so I, just so you can watch just so I can watch. wow and 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 quick aside here here i one of the things you know leading up too because i got stars like maybe a couple of weeks ago i was like you know what i'll get stars and then i'll catch up on patrick stewart's series blunt talk blunt talk is ridiculous which was a star show right and it did get canceled after two seasons did it yeah guys canceled they, they wasn't ready for they wasn't ready for blunt talk they wasn't ready for it obviously they weren't ready that for would it. that would have been a really good netflix you can't series. watch it you can't watch it on stars you can't even watch it anywhere it's not available on stars like you know how like they all like keep all of their shows yeah. like still up there. It's not there. I even looked looked online, and, and it says that like, you should, you're supposed to be watching it on stars. So I said, well, I can't. It's like well, I don't know. <laughs> like the internet literally said, like I don't know. <laughs> okay, uh, Mr. Stewart, because I know you listen. Um, excuse me, Sir Patrick Stewart, because I know you listen. Um, if there's any way you could pull your multitude of nightly strings to enable your adoring public to see your brilliant show blunt talk please do because blunt talk was funny okay so you know frazier mm-hmm. and how frazier had this really highbrow love frazier one of my favorite shows yeah frazier blunt talk is what frazier could have been had frazier been on cable patrick stewart oh you know patrick stewart was on K- frazier for a hot second uh, 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 a classic hot hilarious second. hot second <laughs> a classic second but blunt talk is like a combination of Frasier and I don't know I, I almost want to say the irreverence of Archer you know what I mean because some of the, the left field stuff that comes up in that in that show but I guess I make the comp- the the uh the reference to Frasier, because like I said, they're both very highbrow yeah. leading stars there. Mm-hmm. And if Kelsey Grammer was Patrick Stewart, then Frasier would have been funny like Blunt Talk. But okay. it wasn't. Frasier was funny, though. It was funny. But Frasier ain't funny like Blunt Talk. Right. Well, one day I'll find out. <laughs> That's a shame. I thought it was... Must it, one day when they let it out to play. Maybe they'll put it on 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 a Hulu, maybe? Or, a, or one day. Amazon? Maybe it's licensing. Who knows? Who knows? One day, one day it'll it'll get out there. Someday, we'll watch Blunt Talk together. But it's funny you we mentioned about how I did start American Gods and then I didn't finish it. And the primary reason why I didn't finish it is because at at its core, 
I'm not a book reader. Like mm -hmm. books that I read usually are autobiographies mm -hmm. or they're um, or they're like a kind of like a big book. Lately, I've been on a lot of oral history books, a lot of I like oral histories. I'm reading the oral history now of um, of uh, Star Trek. Which is kind of kind of interesting. I'm waiting for it to get into the next generation, but it's still because it's a lot of stories that I know right now. But it's still kind of cool. But those are generally the books that I read. Like I, I will freely admit, as much as I am a fan of some of the shorter stories of Octavia Butler, I've not read her her novels. That is a hole in my reading um, that I am feeling now because I just bought the uh, adaptation of Kindred. You know that John Jennings mm -hmm. did, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. looks mm -hmm. gorgeous. Um, and I don't buy a whole lot of hardbacks, but I bought a hardback because it was you, brah. That's that's how much I I like you, John. Because I realized the only other artwork by John I have is his great big art book, which I love. And I and I every once in a while will throw out there on a coffee table for people to check it out. But um, I didn't have any sequen sequential work from him. Mm. Um, yet, with all that being said, I was in amalgam. Um, maybe about a couple of weeks ago um, as we were doing our anime Wednesdays there and I was just waiting for everything to, to get all set up and get, get started and I was just looking around you know checking mm -hmm. out the stuff mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I picked up this book and it was it was a book you know up there on the comic book shelves but it was just a straight little book and I kind of like flipped through it a little bit and the next thing I know I realized that I was sitting there and I was reading I had read 10 pages like in the middle and was stuck. I was like, yo, this John is fantastic. And then I looked at it and I realized that not only is this good, this book is, this is a, a sequel. This is not even the original. Oh, you read something out of order? I read it out oh, of I order. Oh, I hate when that happens. That's the worst. <laughs> I, I mean, it's cool because you found a cool book that sucks you in, but then you got to go back and find the first one and hope that your experience with this one doesn't tarnish, you know, what happened before it and just be like, oh, it's like that episode of Steven Universe when Connie tried to get him into a book <laughs> series and he just read them according to book cover. She was like, no, there's an order. Right. So, um, I, so, I, so I talked to um, Ariel there and she ordered... She said, "Well, the the actual first book was coming in. She was waiting for it to, to come in, um, and it came in. The second it came in, I snatched it up. And the book is Binti B I N T I um, by Hugo and Nebula Award winner and Nettie Okorafor, uh, which just really, really sunk me in. I, I'm a I'm a read from the back for you." She left her home for the stars, but found more adventure than she bargained for. A tense and intimate coming-of-age story in space. Yay! Her name is Binti, and she is the first of the Himba people ever to be offered a place at Uzma University, the finest institution of higher learning in the galaxy. But to accept the offer will mean giving, her, giving up her place in her family to travel between the stars among strangers who do not share her ways or respect her customs. Knowledge comes at a cost, one that Binti is willing to pay, but her journey will not be easy. If Binti hopes to survive the legacy of a war, not of her making, she will need both the gifts of her people and the wisdom enshrined within the university itself. But first, she has to make it there alive. Wow. That's yeah. a lot. That's a lot. That's that was the back of the book. I was like, "Yo, I'm there." 
So then I, I read about Ennetti, uh, who has a very, very interesting story, born in the United States um, to two uh, Igbo um, or Nigerian immigrant parents. Mm-hmm. She holds a Ph.D. in English and is an associate professor of creative writing, teaching currently at the University of at Buffalo. She has, be low. There you go. She's been the winner of many awards for her short stories and young adult books, including the Wale Sunyinka Africa Prize for Literature, the nice. Macmillan's Writer Prize for Africa, Le Prix Imaginaire, Best Translated Novel, the Carl Brandon Parallax Award, the Black wow. Excellence Award for Outstanding Achievement in Literature, and the Strange Horizon Reader's Choice Award for Nonfiction. I mean, she, this is an, a, a very, very accomplished uh, woman. She was, um, in her younger days, she was a very talented uh, collegiate tennis star. Wow. Um, before. So she's just like all across the board awesome is what you're that, saying. All that. Great. But Way to she, be an overachiever. Well, then she, devel- <laughs> she, she developed uh, scoliosis, oh. uh, which robbed her of not only her athletic career, but robbed her of her um, ability to walk. Mm. Um, and it, it was only then that she returned to her first, first love and got deeper into science fiction and back into her writing. Mm. And ever since then, she has just been blowing up. She's been a nominee for the, and, and this was back as of 2015. God knows what her biography is now. Um, she was a nominee for the NAACP Imagine Award. Image Award? Or Imagine. It, it an Imagine Award. Uh, and Eddie's story are inspired by her N- Nigerian heritage, her many trips there, and her travels around the world. And she currently lives in Illinois with her daughter and her family. Um, I was just really, um, really marveled at this book. And it moved me so much that it, I, this is a book that I, I will be reading. And with your indulgence out there, you listeners, uh, I would like to read for you um, uh, the first passage from Binti by Ineti Okorafor. Um, I think that this will trap you in. I hope it does. I hope it does for you what it do- did for me as we uh, take this in together in Octavia City. I powered up the transporter and said a silent prayer. I had no idea what I was going to do if it didn't work. My transporter was cheap, so even a droplet of moisture or more likely a grain of sand would cause it to short. It was faulty, and most of the time I had to restart it over and over before it worked. Please not now. Please not now, I thought. The transporter shivered in the sand, and I held my breath. Tiny, flat, and black as a prayer stone, it buzzed softly and then slowly rose from the sand. Finally, it produced the baggage-lifting force. I grinned. Now I could make it to the shuttle. I swiped Ojitsi from my forehead with my index finger and knelt down. Then I touched the finger to the sand, grounding the sweet-smelling red clay into it. Thank you, I whispered. It was a half-mile walk along the dark desert road. With the transporter working, I would make it there on time. Straightening up, I paused and shut my eyes. Now the weight of my entire life was pressing on my shoulders. 
I was defying the most traditional part of myself for the first time in my entire life. I was leaving in the dead of night and they had no clue. My nine siblings, all older than me, except for my younger sister and brother, would never see this coming. My parents would never imagine I'd do such a thing in a million years. By the time they all realized what I'd done and where I was going, I'd have left the planet. In my absence, my parents would growl to each other that I was never to set foot in their home again. My four aunties and two uncles who lived down the road would shout and gossip amongst themselves about how I scandalized our entire bloodline. I was going to be a pariah. Go, I softly whispered to the transporter, stamping my foot. The thin metal rings I wore around each ankle jingled noisily, but I stamped my foot again. Once again, the transporter worked best when I didn't touch it. Go, I said again, sweat forming on my brow. When nothing moved, I chanced giving the two large suitcases sitting atop the force field a shove. They moved smoothly, and I breathed another sigh of relief. At least some luck was on my side. Fifteen minutes later, I purchased a ticket and boarded the shuttle. The sun was barely beginning to peek over the horizon. As I moved past seated passengers, far too aware of the bushy ends of my plaited hair softly slapping people in the face, I cast my eyes to the floor. Our hair is thick, and mine has always been very thick. My old auntie liked to call it odudu because it grew wild and dense like odudu grass. Just before leaving, I rolled my plaited hair with fresh, sweet-smelling ojitsi I'd made specifically for this trip. Who knew what I looked like to these people who didn't know my people so well? A woman leaned away from me as I passed, her face pinched as if she smelled something foul. Sorry, I whispered, watching my feet and trying to ignore the stares of almost everyone in the shuttle. Still, I couldn't help glancing around. Two girls who might have been a few years older than me covered their mouths with hands so pale that they looked untouched by the sun. Everyone looked as if the sun was his or her enemy. I was the only Imba on the shuttle. I quickly found and moved to a seat. The shuttle was one of the new sleek models that looked like the bullets my teacher used to calculate ballistic coefficients during my A-levels when I was growing up. These ones glided fast over land using a combination of air current, magnetic fields, and exponential energy. A easy craft to build if you have the equipment at the time. It was also a nice vehicle for hot desert terrain where the roads leading out of town were terribly maintained. My people didn't like to leave the homeland. I sat in the back so I could look out the large window. I could see the lights from my father's astrolabe shop and the sandstorm analyzer my brother had built at the top of the route. That's what we call my parents' big, big house. Six generations of my family had lived there. It was the oldest house in my village, maybe the oldest in the city. It was made of stone and concrete, cool in the night, hot in the day. And it was patched with solar planes and covered with bioluminescent plants that liked to stop glowing just before sunrise. My bedroom was at the top of the house. The shuttle began to move and I stared until I couldn't see it anymore. What am I doing? I whispered. An hour and a half later, the shuttle arrived at the launch port. I was the last off, which was good because the sight of the launch port overwhelmed me so much that all I could do for several moments was stand there. I was wearing a long red skirt, one that was silky like water, a little orange wind top that was stiff and durable, thin leather sandals, and my anklets. No one around me wore such an outfit. 
All I saw were light flowing garments and veils. Not one woman's ankles were exposed, let alone jingling with steel anklets. I breathed through my mouth and felt my face grow hot. Stupid, 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 I whispered. We Himba don't travel. We stay put. Our ancestral land is life. Move away from it and you diminish it. We even cover our bodies with it. What you see is red land. Here in the launch port, most were Kush and a few other non-Himba. Here, I was an outsider. I was outside. What was I thinking? I whispered. I was 16 years old and had never been beyond my city, let alone near a launch station. I was by myself and I had just left my family. My prospects of marriage had been 100% and now they would be zero. No man wanted a woman who'd run away. However, beyond my prospects of normal life being ruined, I had scored so high on the planetary exams in mathematics that the Uzma University had not only admitted me, but promised to pay for whatever I needed in order to attend. No matter what choice I made, I was never going to have a normal life, really. I looked around and immediately knew what to do next. I walked to the help desk. The travel security officer scanned my astrolabe a full, deep scan. Dizzy with shock, I shut my eyes and breathed through my mouth to steady myself. Just to leave the planet, I had to give them access to my entire life. Me, my family, and all forecasts of my future. I stood there, frozen, hearing my mother's voice in my head. There's a reason why our people do not go to that university. Uzma Yuni wants you for its own gain, Binti. You go to that school and you become its slave. I couldn't help but contemplate the possible truth in her words. I hadn't even gotten there yet and already I'd given them my life. I wanted to ask the officer if he did this for everyone, but I was afraid now that he'd done it. They could do anything to me at this point. Best not to make trouble. When the officer handed me my astrolabe, I resisted the urge to snatch it back. He was an old Kush man, so old that he was privileged to wear the blackest turban and face veil. His shaky hands were so gnarled and arthritic that he nearly dropped my astrolabe. He was bent like a dying palm tree. And when he said, you have never traveled, I must do a full scan. Remain where you are. His voice was drier than the red desert outside my city. But he read my astrolabe as fast as my father, which both impressed and scared me. He coaxed it open by whispering a few choice equations, and his suddenly steady hands worked the dials as if they were his own. When he finished, he looked up at me with his light green piercing eyes that seemed to see deeper into me than his scan of my astrolabe. There were people behind me, and I was aware of I was aware of their whispers, soft laughter, and a young child murmuring. It was cool in the terminal, but I felt the heat of social pressure. My temples ached and my feet tingled. Congratulations, he said to me in his parched voice, holding out my astrolabe. I frowned at him, confused. What for? You are the pride of your people, child, he said, looking me in the eye. Then he smiled broadly and patted my shoulder. He'd just seen my entire life. He knew of my admission into Uzmayuni. Oh, my eyes pricked with tears. Thank you, sir. I said hoarsely as I 
took my astrolabe. I quickly made my way through the many people on the terminal, too aware of their closeness. I considered finding a lavatory and applying more juice to my skin and tying my hair back, but instead, I kept moving. Most of the people in the busy terminal wore the black and white garments of the Kush people. The women draped in white with multicolored belts and veils, and the men draped in black like powerful spirits. I had seen plenty of them on television and here and there in my city, but never had I been in a sea of Kush. This was the rest of the world, and I was finally in it. As I stood in line for boarding security, I felt a tug of my hair. I turned around and met the eyes of a group of Kush women. They were all staring at me. Everyone behind me was staring at me. The woman who tugged my plait was looking at her fingers and rubbing them together, frowning. Her fingertips were orange-red with my jutsi. She sniffed them. It smells like jasmine flowers, she said to the women on her left, surprised. Not doo-doo, one woman said. I hear it smells like doo-doo because it is doo-doo. No, definitely jasmine flowers. It's thick like doo-doo, though. Is her hair even real? Another woman asked the woman rubbing her fingers. I don't know. These dirt bathers are filthy people, the first woman muttered. I just turned my back around, my shoulders hunched. My mother had counseled me to be quiet around Koosh. My father told me that when he was around Koosh merchants, when they came out to our city to buy astrolabes, he tried to make himself as small as possible. It is either that or I will start a war with them that I will finish, he said. My father didn't believe in war. He said war was evil, but if it came, he would revel in it like sand in a storm. Then he said a little prayer to the seven to keep war away, and then another prayer to seal his words. I pulled my plaits to the front and touched the Eden in my pocket. I let my mind focus on it. It's strange language. It's strange metal. It's strange feel. I'd found the Eden eight years ago while exploring the sands of the Hinter Deserts one late afternoon. Eden was a general name for a device too old for anyone to know its functions, so old that they were now just art. My Eden was more interesting than any book, than any new astrolabe design I made in my father's shop that these women would probably kill each other to buy. And it was mine, in my pocket. And these nosy women behind me would never know. Those women talked about me. The men probably did too. But none of them knew what I had, where I was going, who I was. Let them gossip and judge. Thankfully, they know not to touch my hair again. I don't like war either. The security guard scowled when I stepped forward. Behind him, I could see three entrances. The one in the middle led into the ship called Third Fish, the ship I was to take to Uzma Uni. Its open door was large and round, leading into a long corridor illuminated by soft blue lights. Step forward, the guard said. He wore the uniform of all launch site low, lower level personnel, a long white gown and gray gloves. I'd only seen this uniform in streaming stories and books, and I wanted to giggle despite myself. He looked ridiculous. I stepped forward and everything went red and warm. When the body scan beeped its completion, the security guard reached right into my left pocket and brought out my Eden. He held it to his face with a deep scowl. I waited. What would he know? He was inspecting its stellated cube shape 
pressing its many points with his fingers and eyeing the strange symbols on it that I had spent two years unsuccessfully trying to decode. He held it to his face to better see the intricate loops and swirls of blue and black and white, so much like the lace placed on the heads of young girls when they turn 11 and go through their 11th year right. What is this made of? The guard asked, holding it over a scanner. It's not reading as any known metal. I shrugged, too aware of the people behind me waiting in line and staring at me. To them, I was probably like one of the people who lived in caves deep in the hinter desert who were so blackened by the sun that they looked like walking shadows. I'm not proud to say that I have some desert people blood in me from my father's side of the family. That's where my dark skin and extra bushy hair come from. Your identity reads that you're a harmonizer, a masterful one who builds some of the finest astrolabes, he said. But this object isn't an astrolabe. Did you build it? And how can you build something and not know what it's made of? I didn't build it. Who did? It's it's just an old, old thing. It has no math or current. It's just an inert computer putative apparatus that I carry for good luck. This was partially a lie, but even I didn't know exactly what he could and couldn't do. The man looked as if he would ask more, but didn't. Inside, I smiled. Government security guards were only educated up to age 10, yet because of their jobs, they were used to, used to ordering people around, and they especially looked down on people like me. Apparently, they were the same everywhere, no matter the tribe. He had no idea what a computative apparatus was, but he didn't want to show that I, a poor himbo girl, was more educated than he, not in front of all these people. So he quickly moved me along, and finally, there I stood at my ship's entrance. I couldn't see the end of the corridor, so I stared at the entrance. The ship was a magnificent piece of living technology. Third fish was a Miri 12, a type of ship closely related to a shrimp. Miri 12s were stable, calm creatures with natural exoskeletons that could withstand the harshness of space. They were genetically enhanced to grow three breathing chambers within their bodies. Scientists planted rapidly growing plants within these enormous rooms that not only produce oxygen from the CO2 directed in from the other parts of the ship, but also absorb benzene, uh, formaldehyde, and trichloroethylene. This was some of the most amazing technology I ever read about. Once settled on the ship, I was determined to convince someone to let me see one of these amazing rooms. But at the moment, I wasn't thinking about the technology of the ship. I was on the threshold now between home and my future. I stepped into the blue corridor. So that is how it all began. I found my room. I found my group. Twelve other new students, all human, all kush, between the ages of 15 and 18. An hour later, my group and I located a ship technician to show us one of the breathing chambers. I wasn't the only new Uzma Uni student who desperately wanted to see the technology at work. The air in there smelled like jungles and forests I'd only read about. The plants had tough leaves and they grew everywhere from ceiling to walls to floor. They were wild with flowers and I could have stood there breathing that soft, fragrant air for days. 
We met our group leader hours later. He was a stern old Kush man who looked the 12 of us over and paused at me asking, why are you covered in red greasy clay and weighed down by all these steel anklets? When I told him that I was Himba, he coolly said, I know, but that doesn't answer my question. I explained to him the tradition of my people's skincare and how we wore the steel rings on our ankles to protect us from snake bites. He looked at me for a long time. The others in the group staring at me like a rare, bizarre butterfly. Wear your ojutsu, he said. But not so much that you stain up this ship. And if these anklets are to protect you from snake bites, you no longer need them. I took my anklets off, except for two on each ankle, enough to jingle with each step. I was the only himbo on the ship out of nearly 500 passengers. My tribe is obsessed with innovation and technology, but it's small, private. And as I said, we don't like to leave Earth. We prefer to explore the universe by traveling inward as opposed to outward. No himba had, has ever gone to Uzma Uni. So me being the only one on the ship was not that surprising. However, just because something isn't surprising, it doesn't mean it's easy to deal with. The ship was packed with outward looking people who love mathematics, experimenting, learning, reading, inventing, studying, obsessing, revealing. The people on the ship weren't Himba, but I soon understood that they were still my people. I stood out, a, stood out as a Himba, but the commonalities shine brighter. I made friends quicker, quickly. And by the second week in space, they were good friends. Olu, Remy, Kawuga, Nor, Ajijama, Rodan. Only Olu and Remy were in my group. Everyone else I met in the dining area or the learn learning room where various lectures were held by professors on board the ship. They were all girls who grew up in sprawling houses, who never walked through the desert, who never stepped on a snake in the dry grass. They were girls who could not stand the rays of Earth's sun unless it was shining through a tinted window. Yet, they were girls who knew what I meant when I spoke of treeing. We sat in my room because having so few travel items, my was the emptiest, and challenged each other to look out at the stars and imagine the most complex equation and then split it in half and then in half again and again. When you do math fractals long enough, you kick yourself into treeing just enough to get lost in the shallows of the mathematical sea. None of us would have made it into the university if we couldn't tree, but it's not easy. We were the best, and we pushed each other to get closer to God. Then there was Heru. I had never spoken to him, but we smiled across the table at each other during mealtimes. He was one of those... He was from one of those cities so far from mine that they seemed like a figment of my imagination where there was snow and where men rode these enormous gray birds and the women could speak with those birds without moving their mouths. Once Heru was standing behind me in the dinner line with one of his friends, I felt someone pick up one of my plaits and I whirled around ready to be angry. I met his eye and he quickly let go of my hair, smiled and raised his hands up defensively. I couldn't help it. He said, his fingertips reddish with my ajutse. You can't control yourself, I snapped. You have exactly 21, 
and they're braided in tessellating triangles. Is it some sort of code? I wanted to tell him that there was a code, that the pattern spoke my family's bloodline, culture, and history. That my father had designed the code, and my mother and aunties had shown me how to braid it into my hair. However, looking at Heru made my heart beat too fast, and my words escaped me. So I merely shrugged and turned back around to pick up a bowl of soup. Heru was tall and had the whitest teeth I'd ever seen. And he was very good at mathematics. Few would have noticed the code in my hair. But I never got the chance to tell him that my hair was braided into the history of my people. Because what happened, happened. It occurred on the 18th day of the journey. The five days before we arrived on the planet Uzma Uni, the most powerful and innovative sprawling universe in the university in the Milky Way. I was the happiest I'd ever been in my life, and I was farther from my beloved family than I'd ever been in my life. I was at the table savoring a mouthful of gelatinous milk-based dessert with slivers of coconut in it. I was gazing at Heru, who wasn't gazing at me. I put my fork down and had my Eden in my hands. I fiddled with it as I watched Heru talk to the boy beside him. The delicious, creamy dessert was melting coolly on my tongue. Beside me, Olo and Remy were singing a traditional song from their city because they missed home, a song they had, that had to be sung with a wavery voice like a water spirit. Then someone screamed, and Heru's chest burst open, spattering me with his warm blood. There was a Medusa right behind him. Yo, I thought for sure her and Heru was going to get it in. <clears throat> I thought they was going to be dag. All right. I can see why you got snatched into this. Yo. <laughs> I, can, I can see why this grabbed you. That was, uh, that was like the opening passage to Binti by Nnedi Okorafor, um, who I did reach out to um, through multiple um, uh Attempts through, mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. Her, mm-hmm. her manager and to her personal website, uh, trying and, and even through Twitter, trying to get her to come onto the show, and she and uh, I didn't. I was unsuccessful, but the book moved me so much that I did not want to, that to stop me from bringing it to Octavia City. Cool. I'm glad you did. Uh, that, that's that's cool that you. First of all, I'm glad that you found a book that was able to suck you in like that. Yeah, and uh, I totally understand why this was the one to do it because that is some excellent world building right there, isn't it? Though I mean, like it's just so matter of factly just putting in all the 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 Eden and the Ojitsi and 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 even though it's futuristic, it's there's still definitely a, a sense of place and history and honoring of her. Um, uh, um, Af- ancestors or heritage and a heritage in there it's just really beautiful i gotta done. say though i miss i miss I, i'm sure i mispronounced many words umza uzma umza umza what was i saying uzma you know why i was saying uzma from kappa from uh, uh uzma kappa from monster university <laughs> oh no i was saying uzma <laughs> i was saying uzma because of um that was a a similarly spelled word uh, that was used in the uh, actual novels 
of the Wizard of Oz. Gotcha. So that's it. So that's immediately what my brain would would say. And once I said it once, that was it. Stuck. That, that's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, the fraternity that Mike Wazowski and uh, Sully from Monsters Inc. belonged to in in college was Uzma Kappa. Oh wow! And they were okay. Oh. That's cool. <laughs> That's cool. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, I dug that because it was on the, it was everywhere on the on the on the drawing. Yeah, that was a good movie. Well done. Well, thank you, thank you. So, yeah, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I invite you to uh, to seek out Binti. It's available in better bookstores and everywhere online. It's a really cool book, and I think you will enjoy it. And hey, if you are a fan or Acquainted in any way with Inetti uh, Okorafor, uh, tell her that uh, the Black Tribbles read her stuff and stuff. And we like it. We like it a lot. I like it a lot. I like it. I like it. I like it a lot. All right. So we're going to continue down this, uh, this, 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 the highways and byways of Octavia City as we make our way towards the exit ramp. Um, and first, stopping off at Shea Allen, where Kennedy. Oh, was that me? Yes. I didn't know that. Shay what? Shay Allen. Oh, that's not what you said before. Well, Allen. Oh, 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 oh. I thought you said Elaine. I thought you said Shez Elaine. I'm like, who is Elaine? Elaine! <laughs> who is that? Elaine! You know where that's from? No. The Graduate. I've never seen it. I've never seen The Graduate. Sorry, hon. I've never seen The Graduate. I was born in 84, Elaine. Give me some slack. They run it every year. Oh, What? Turner. What what media outlet that I don't subscribe to? Turn to classic movies. Yeah, but boo, that's all you. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, very rarely watch any TCM. You miss a lot of good stuff. I know. I'm familiar. Okay. So anyway, so so Kennedy, you actually for I think is this the second year that you've um no I don't think last year I think the year before you had written a tale for Octavia City. Right. Right, so this is the second time yes. you've written a tale for Octavia City. What will you be gracing us with this evening? The Wonder Gleasons. Wonder Gleason powers activate. I mean, if you want, to. it's not. It's not a superhero story. If that's what you're concerned about, it's not Jackie Gleason. No. Okay. So, so do you want to give a little uh, talk up about what the, what inspired this little? Um, I I kind of do but i kind of don't because i think feel like we're pressed and I, I just anyone that knows me knows that i'm a huge advocate for planetary colonization and uh if i had my way um well no not even if i had my way but this this is this is something that i would pick up if i saw it in a in a in a bookstore somewhere and read the first couple pages of and uh i hope that you all like it i'll just it's pretty self-explanatory all right I hope so, you dig. so here you go the wonder gleason's by Storm Tribble here on Black Tribble's Prime in Octavia City. Him, 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 him. <clears throat> My grandparents tell the story as often as anyone will sit still to listen. They speak like religious radicals recalling the last words of a dying prophet when they tell the story of our quest for a better life. I can never truly give it justice, so I won't try. Instead, I'll give you my parents' story, as I was at least around for some of that. My mother, Cecilia Jenkins, married my father, Joseph Gleason, directly after graduate school. They had been astronomy students at the University of Penn through most of their postgraduate education, my father a creditor or two behind my mother. 
He graduated with a double master's in astronomy and microbiology, as my, father, as my mother finished her doctorate in astrophysics and cosmology. My father was short, bald, and stocky. He had been on the varsity wrestling team all through high school and undergrad. In spite of his imposing frame, my father had a soft yet firm voice with the diction of a linguistic specialist, so most people le always leaned in to listen when he had something to say. He'd gotten into astronomy because of his love for stargazing, a fascination he developed as a Boy Scout. His love of the outdoors made it difficult for him to cope with the concept of going off-world initially, and at times was a great source of stress for the two of them. My mother was always the tallest woman in the room. She had been a tremendous athlete her whole life, playing softball, field hockey, and volleyball, depending on the season, of course. She was standoffish by nature and, due to her imposing manner, had few real friends. Still, she was so brilliant that her peers and students alike clung to every word she said, whether she was discussing the complexity of gravimetric fields or the history of baseball. As a teaching assistant, as a teaching assistant, she was a heavy influence on my father's decision to include a focus on microbiology during his first year of grad school. He became so thoroughly smitten by her brain and her beauty that from there on out, he was at her beckoning call every second he was available and followed her around everywhere she went, insisting that he carry her books along the way. Together and individually, they suffered the pangs of prejudice, even within the hallowed confines of a supposedly more enlightened academia. Their theories were often discredited before they had the opportunity to defend them, which made advancing beyond the boundaries of university-funded research more difficult than it needed to be. It seemed like every financial step forward was followed by three steps backwards, and paying the rent became a monthly headache. My mother refused to go on welfare, stating that she had paid too much in tuition over the course of her life to utilize government assistance. While my father silently agreed, he was tempted just the same. It was a bleary Monday morning, as my mother told it, when they heard the news that would change their lives. A wealthy media mogul announced that she was launching an independently funded company dedicated to planetary colonization. Because the company was privately owned, the mogul was able to have the most discerning of tastes when it came to hiring employees and executives alike. When the first team of scientists and engineers had been assembled, my parents noticed that each and every one of them was black. When initially confronted uh, about the lack of diversity in her new company, the mogul shrugged and refused to comment. The trend continued as the first flight crew was assembled, each astronaut being more decorated than the next, and each of them undeniably black. Finally, when refusing to comment was no longer sufficient, this groundbreaking uh, business person released a statement alluding to the idea that this company was founded in an attempt to rescue black people from the lethal social and cultural aggressions they had suffered through for generations. Whether they were Americans of African descent like my parents, dark-skinned Indo-Pakistanis, Southeast Asians, Pacific Islanders, or Aboriginal Australians, scientists everywhere began applying for positions on this coveted voyage to freedom from the oppression of global anti-blackness. By and large, white and fair-skinned people scoffed at the ingenuity of this movement. Many people, black and white alike, swore the first rocket would never make it off the ground. Now you know good and goddamn well 
they'd say to each other in the hoods of coastal America. There ain't none of these fools out here building no damn rocket. The middle of the country housed residents that shared the sentiment, substituting the word fool for something a lot more cruel, usually. The upper crust, that 1%, barely paid us any mind, chalking it up to a passing fad. But when the first three rounds of test flights went perfectly, and the first manned mission to Mars was not only black, but completely successful, suddenly going to another planet was no longer just for white people. My parents began training to go off-world immediately once that statement had been released. They had six months to get conditioned and qualify for the rigorous conditions of space travel, and nothing but nothing was about to keep them on this planet. They figured that collectively they possessed enough knowledge and ingenuity to seriously affect the learning curve in any testing situation they found themselves in. And they were right. Their peers couldn't hold a flame to their intellectual superiority. Between my, bro- my father's brute strength and my mother's powerful dexterity, every physical obstacle they faced got cleared with an ease that baffled even the meanest of drill sergeants. However, my parents' climb to greatness wasn't without its hitches. Whenever the moments of doubt would set in, the world they lived in managed to keep them motivated. I remember my father speaking of a night when both of them, sitting at their second-hand kitchen table, all battered, bruised, and mentally exhausted from their training, mutually considered quitting the program and teaching high school science instead. He mentioned the relief he'd seen in my mother's eyes and the disappointment he'd felt when he saw it. Before he could say a word that night, however, the evening headline pierced through the tension like a hot knife through butter and flooded them with a daily American dosage of reports of black men being murdered by cops in front of their children and black women being sexually harassed in the workplace. Angry and frustrated that the, by the blatant injustice surrounding them, the quote-unquote wonder Gleasons trained harder, surpassing every expectation that was thrown their way. Galvanized as they had become, however, it was halfway through that training that my mother realized that she had become pregnant, and their dreams of starting a black colony on Mars crumbled. They weren't unhappy to have me when it was all said and done, but even as a child I was fully aware of the sacrifices my parents had made to raise me. When I started the first grade, it became immediately clear that I had surpassed the intellectual expectations of a child my age. By the time I reached high school, I had been awarded all the medals and national recognition a student could hope for, which made applying to and getting accepted into NASA's space camp that much easier. My first year of college was difficult for me, but only in the social capacity. I had inherited my father's build and love for nature, as well as my mother's height and larger-than-life voice. Like her, I had difficulty making real friends, and like her, took solace in knowing the fact that I was usually the smartest person in the room. I, too, had my sights set on space travel, whether it was with NASA or the appropriately named Exodus program. When the next round of interviews were conducted, my parents again leapt at the opportunity, if only to be involved in a scientific capacity since they were too old at that point to become astronauts. But when their resumes were reviewed and word got out that they had a daughter that displayed exceptional intellectual prowess, enough strings got pulled that each of us, as a family, were considered to travel to Mars. During the consideration cycle, as they called it, our house was perpetually surrounded by press. National press, local press, print publications, podcasts, you name it, they all came knocking on our door, hoping to catch a glimpse of us. The space Negroes. 
My mother was annoyed with the spectacle they were attempting to make, while my father was infinitely amused by it. The summer after I graduated from Penn with a double degree in advanced thermodynamics and propulsion engineering, we found ourselves in Florida, undergoing more tests than there were names for. The scrutiny was relentless, so much so that I strongly considered dropping out and pursuing my doctorate on Earth. But one day, when I stepped outside the training facility after 14 consecutive hours of endurance and valuations, a young girl, probably six or seven years old, hopped to the crowd barricade and threw herself around my leg, sobbing something about how I was her hero. At the time, I chuckled, patted the girl on the head, signed her the Apollo flight suit she was wearing, and went about my business. But when I got home and saw that very exchange plastered across every media platform known to man, I realized that I couldn't drop out. So many things rested on my family's participation in Exodus, from the cultural significance to the scientific impact we would make for generations to come, that I couldn't possibly leave the program. I gritted my teeth, steeled my resolve, and trained harder, the fleeting images of that little girl's face pressing me forward all the while. I vividly remember the day we learned we'd made it into Exodus. My neighbors suddenly accepted the black family that had lived on their block for the better part of 20 years, offering to throw us party after party, probably to ride the coattails of our popularity. If the press had been relentless before, they were positively unreasonable from there on out. Both sets of my grandparents took up residence in our already too small house and made it their business to fuss over us individually and collectively until we moved out of Philly and into our training facility home in Cape Kennedy three months later. Admittedly, the rest of our time on Earth was and remains to be a blur. We could only bask in the glow of being the first family to colonize another planet during business hours, as that star treatment faded as soon as we stepped off the base. The racial slurs were as vicious as ever, paying a particular and morbid attention to the intersection of racism and sexism that my mother and I experienced. Every day, things like running errands became taxing, as the southern bigots hurled their hatred at us whenever and however they could. I could see my mother's patience wearing thin, and my father smiled less and less as the days went by. Most astronauts recounted their final days before launch with distinct tones of anxiety and apprehension. The Gleason family, on the other hand, preferred to face the potential dangers of planetary colonization rather than continue to deal with the unapologetic racism and the social injustice on Earth. The plan was simple. Myself, my parents, and 75 other scientists and technicians board the sleek and innovative Exodus One, a brand spanking new fuel-efficient rocket created by the best minds American historically black colleges and universities had to offer, and hurl ourselves into low orbit, low Earth orbit. Once orbit was established, all hands performed full systems diagnostics, or FSD, within their departments and, upon clearance, tucked themselves into their cryo beds for a five-month nap. A full month away from Mars orbit, the crew wakes up and performs another round of FSD before moving into the more complicated and dangerous portion of the mission, MOLES, or Mars Orbiter and Lander Separation. Just like it sounds, half of the vessel we were riding would remain in orbit and serve as a relay point for communications between the lander and Earth, with modular augmentations capable of supporting and sustaining additional orbiters from future missions, thereby establishing a station to study the Martian atmosphere and any weather colonists had to prepare for. 
A crew of 18 stayed in orbit to maintain the comm link with mission control on Earth and monitor the health and progress of the other 60 of us on the ground. My parents were ranking officers and part of the orbiter crew in charge of relaying information back and forth from Earth while having the final say-so about a multitude of things. While my parents weren't commanding officers, they were definitely department heads and were highly regarded just the same. The lander, on the other hand, was a completely separate vessel that was as massive as it was practical. Anubis One, or the Chariot, as we began to call it, was an immense lander that could comfortably accommodate the entire landing crew, their equipment and provisions, three mobile labs, two rovers, and a bot, plus enough fuel and water to get everyone started until the colonization process began to sustain itself. As a propulsion specialist, my job was to... to ensure safe LNL, or launch and landing, of vessels landing and departing from the Martian surface. While the squad of scientists that modified it to, well, while I wasn't on the team that designed the landing protocols we utilized, I was part of the squad of scientists that modified it to bear the load we needed to carry. As much as we wanted to admit the use of volatile and precious fossil fuels, certain things couldn't be avoided given the technology we had at our disposal. Designing the shoot sheets that helped our lander reduce fuel consumption by 83% will always be one of my proudest accomplishments, but I digress. The entire voyage to Mars felt more like, looking back at it rather, felt more like the storyboards of a comic book than the methodical series of scientific events. I remember the launch techs strapping me into my seat since my suit was too bulky for me to do it myself. I remember shouting with joy while simultaneously feeling my boobs drop to the floor of my bladder at liftoff. I remember seeing my dad vomit in his suit when he reached zero G's and quickly following suit myself. I remember how much of a pain in the ass it was to coordinate a 20-person engineering crew in zero G's. I remember being shocked at how glad I was to climb into the cryo bed. I remember how ill I was when I woke up five months later. I remember how much easier it was to coordinate that same crew of engineers once everyone realized how much they'd rather be on solid ground than floating in space. I remember my parents doing the unthinkable and crying over me before the landing crew boarded the Anubis One. My mother even handed me a freeze-dried corned beef sandwich in a paper bag she brought all that way especially for that moment. I remember finding religion in the timeless seconds it took for our shoot sheets to deploy and drastically slow down our rate of descent. I remember weeping in my helmet as I gazed across the horizon of a new world. But as I saw the earth began to set to my left, I suddenly recalled the years of pain and heartache our people endured there and instantly got focused on the task at hand. At short, I went directly to work. The next three years on Mars changed everything. We had immense support from Mission Control in Houston, and our orbital team pulled multiple double shifts to ensure that we were well taken care of. The second wave of scientists arrived on schedule and picked up where the first crew had left off, so the science was going according to plan as well. Eventually, folks began began pairing off, and couples began to solidify. None of us, as scientists or as people, were prepared for the obstacle that presented itself next. A couple in the botany division fell in love and feared that they had conceived. When they went to the med bay to confirm pregnancy, the test results brought back some alarming results. They were sterile. In a rush, 
The doctors requested DNA samples from everyone on the planet. Everyone should have been able to conceive, as healthy as we all were. But there was something about the Martian atmosphere that prevented organic human conception. While it wasn't an immediate problem, eventually we would have to confront the issue with species preservational urgency. My father even came down to the surface to lend his experience as a microbiologist, which led to people gossiping about his true reasons for coming down in the first place. Some speculated that there would be some genetic experiments if one of the top microbiologists was here to investigate. Others assumed that he was visiting me. When he finally did stop by my quarters, our women's medical specialist was with him, which alarmed me more than I was expecting. Dr. Joy Tan was a dark-skinned Cambodian woman who had seen the horrors of war for most of her life, wearing a scar from her forehead to her jaw as proof. She was usually all business and had a reputation for a chilly bedside manner. But when they arrived, I greeted them warmly, just the same. Dr. Gleason, I smiled at my father. Welcome to Mars. My father allowed a brief smirk before clearing his throat. <clears throat> Thank you, Ms. Gleason. Uh, he turned and gestured toward Dr. Tan and continued. Dr. Tan and I wanted to speak with you about something important. Do you have a moment? I nodded and invited them in, suddenly very anxious. I'm sure by now you're aware of our procreation dilemma. Dr. Tam was abrupt, as always. Dr. Gleason and I have analyzed the data, and we've come to some alarming conclusions. It appears, my dad's shown tone shifted from business to gentle abruptly, that out of everyone here, you are the only one with the ability to conceive on this planet. I was stunned. How? Good genes. Dr. Tan smiled. The rest of the crew lacks a rare enzyme that prevents the carbon dioxide-rich atmosphere here from interfering with conception on a biomolecular level. Somehow, you do. I swallowed, but... If no one else has the enzyme, how can you have a baby? My father smirked at me, finishing my sentence. Fortunately for you, this crew has an exceptional microbiologist who's been able to devise a way to use your genetic material for both sets of chromosomes required to conceive. He winked at me then. We've come to talk to you, Dr. Tan leaned in, because we need your consent. While the longevity of this colony depends on you, no one at Mission Control wants you to feel pressured into doing something that you don't want to do. I was stuck. I hadn't planned on having ch any children because of the rigorous demands of my career, but here I was, our only hope for successful colonization. My father leaned forward and laid his hand on mine. You will not be alone through this, Lyria, he smiled at me. You have a team of experts to ensure both your, your health and the babies. I don't mean to put any pressure on you, but... I looked at them both and weighed my options carefully. At the end of the day, the propulsion team could handle the load, and I could function throughout most of the pregnancy as a team leader well enough. As the knot of uncertainty sank lower in my belly, I felt a strange surge of relief, as if a weight I didn't know I had been carrying was lifted from my shoulders. I looked back at my father and smiled. I'll do it. Nine months later, my daughter was born. I had since tuned out the feedback from Earth regarding my unorthodox pregnancy, and relied heavily on the support system my crew had built for me. Free from the confines of Eurocentric notions of propriety, I named her Hete Perez, after one of the most influential women in Egyptian history. Little Rez was born 
after 16 hours of labor, weighing in at a healthy 8 pounds and 9 ounces, and it was a bundle of complete and utter joy. Everyone in the colony blessed us with gifts during those first few days. They brought toys and clothing for Rez and offered their babysitting services whenever I should need a break. The village truly leapt at the opportunity to raise this, their only child. News of the first Martian birth spread like wildfire back on Earth, and suddenly the rest of humanity became fascinated with planetary colonization. Independent space companies began popping up the world over, and the closer they got to reaching Mars, the more worried our little colony became. We became plagued with questions we hadn't anticipated. What should we do if they landed on our planet? Is it even really our planet? Is there enough room for more colonies? Did we have the right to prevent people, white people specifically, from coming to Mars in search of a better life? Should we move, pull up stakes, and find another planet to colonize? Should we even have to, after everything our people had gone through to get to this point at all? One night, I pondered the answers to these difficult questions while rocking my miracle-born child to sleep. As I gazed out of my window at the copper Martian horizon, I realized I would never, and should never, be able to answer these quandaries. My daughter suddenly stirred in her sleep and smiled brightly, if only for a moment. Her warm mahogany cheeks dimpled at whatever pleasant thought she was experiencing as she snuggled closer to my breast. I grinned at my creation and decided then and there that she would never have to adapt to the atrocities of her ancestors, not as long as her people were around to protect her. The Wonder Gleasons. Yes. That's pretty dope. Thank you. That's pretty cool. You like it. I did like it. Do you like it really? I like it a lot. You're not just telling me that because it's just the two of us. No. Okay, good. <laughs> no, it's cool. It's very cool. Um, so now, will you, will you divulge the secrets behind the Wonder Gleasons? What it, it sounded like, knowing you a little bit, it sounded like a little bit of that was pulled from life, real life. For some for some reason, I, I there was some familiarity with some of the, the characters, especially the, um, the the parents and uh, the the dynamic that was being portrayed that struck me as very you know something I recognized. That's interesting because my parents are nothing like that. <laughs> Their relationship was never anything like that. You know what I mean? Um, I wanted to create a, a, a group of people that I, you know, I don't know. I guess I'm a little disappointed because my whole point of, of writing them that way was so that they weren't like anything that I was accustomed to or familiar with. I was trying to draw as little from my personal life as possible. Okay. Well, I don't it still doesn't take away from the story and in, in, in that that's what I heard and, and who am I, you know? Okay. It, it certainly didn't take away from it and it was, it was interesting and it, um, the, the tale of just their, um, it, it was really kind of cool just dealing with uh, how, how the coin flipped like once they became you know the Wonder Gleasons. You know, mm -hmm. like all of a sudden, like ooh, ooh. yeah, yeah, <laughs> hello, yeah, yeah, hello, Buffy, look, <laughs> it's the Gleasons. Look, darling, the Gleasons must come over for tea, darling. 
Um, yeah, I wanted to also establish that just because a person has a degree, just because a person is educated, doesn't necessarily mean that their 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 experience on this planet is any easier. Oh yeah, right. You know, like like that that cap and gown does not make um, your life easier, and, and that's contrary to what we've all been told. You know, we've all been told our whole lives get an education, and you can't be stopped. And there's so many people specifically in, in younger generations who have degrees, who are extremely educated, masters, you know, doctors pursuing their doctorates and are having the hardest time um, securing financial stability for themselves because of a multitude of things. A lot of it is economic. Some of it is cultural and, and prejudice. Um, so I wanted to to show that even though these people were the cream of the crop, they still had to deal with issues that yeah. many of us, you know, deal with without being that educated. It was very good. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for giving me the place to do so. <laughs> You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Well, before we, we shut this down, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I do want to make sure that we uh, give give just time for everything that was noted on the um, on our flyer. And that means that it's also time for I wrote a little something. A little something? You you put a little something together? I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all should see Len right now. <laughs> With his Logan jacket on. <laughs> that joint is so Wolverine, man. That joint fly. It's, Go ahead. It's not Wolverine. Um, it, 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 simply put, it, 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 uh, I, you know, I, 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 hey, here you go. Okay, so I, I was inspired by all of what I have been reading and hearing these past few weeks here in Octavia City. So I was moved to um, write something myself for you. And I hope that you will indulge me out there, listeners in the Triple Nation, uh, as I regale you with my tale. Is that okay, Kennedy? I'm with it. All right, so. Now, you're in for a treat, listeners. As I offer you a glimpse into the, <clears throat> into the writing prowess of the Bat Tribble right here on the final night inside Octavia City. Despite knowing next to nothing about this gentleman, I was inspired to write a tale about a doctor that... Who? Why, yes, in fact. Yes, what? No, who? What? Who? You wrote a story about a doctor. Yes, and you were correct. A doctor who... Uh, I see what you mean. Who? Who? You see who I mean. Exactly. So my story is about a doctor who... Which one? Which one what? Which doctor who? Who what? Which doctor who are you talking about, Len? I'm talking about a doctor who... Right, which who? Which who what? Which who are you talking about? A doctor who wears a cape and... Oh, that's strange. What's strange? Who wears a cape? Who wears a cape? Who wears a scarf? Who wears a scarf? Yeah, it's strange, though. What's strange? Whose scarf acts like a cape sometimes? I don't know. He's on third. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> well, there you go, Lisa. I okay. So when Len put this flyer out, I was like, "Oh snap! Len is writing Afrofuturism. What is going on here?" 
And then I get here tonight, Triple Nation, and he hands me this script. I was like, what? I get put to work, too? And I just read through it. You saw how quick it was. I giggled. (laughs) (laughs) Who doesn't like a little Abbott and Costello in their lives? Leave it to you to make it comedic. Well, I mean, the, you know, uh, fans that know uh, Abbott and Costello, their their classic bit, "Who's on Who's on first? which I, which is very funny. I listen to it at least three times a year, um, and I was at least three times a year. I listen to it three times a year. Wow! Because it, it, I I find it it's so funny. I think I've maybe heard it three times in life. Really? Yeah. Oh, it is. It it's it, it's it's as funny as it is, and it's funny as the 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 characters of Abbott and Costello, who many people now probably don't even know because how old they are, right? Um, and, and you know, uh, Lou Costello is the short, fat guy, and Bud Abbott's the tall the tall guy. It really is about it. That who's on first is all about the straight man. Mm-hmm. It's all about Abbott and how he he's getting that over. It's it's classic. It's classic. It's, it's so classic, ladies and gentlemen, that yes. No, no I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Uh-oh. You don't put it out there. Now you have to do it. Well, I was going to put it on at the end of, like, maybe at the, like, a, as a, a stinger. I'll put it on as a stinger at the end of the, at the end of the episode on the podcast. Okay. So people can, so people can hear, you know, what inspired me to do that little bit of Doctor Who, Doctor Strange little insanity right there. I mean... Anyone that listens to us ought to know something about Doctor Who or Doctor Strange, if nothing else, from what we've mentioned about them. So if this is your first time with us, that's kind of cool. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, here's the beautiful thing about what Octavia City represents. It it. And Afrofuturism. Afrofuturism, for those who don't know, is a kind of an exploration of science uh, blending with the uh, the experience of living and growing uh, and being in tune with and being part of the African diaspora and that whole whole heritage and history. Um, and as well as blending that with um, social relevance and trying to be creative and using creativity as a agent of social change. Um, and it's something that you find, as we have demonstrated here this month in Octavia City, in the writing of many, many writers from the whole collective of Metro Polarity. Mm-hmm. To uh, who's actually doing a reading tonight as we speak? I know. I'm I, mad. I was like, because they never do live readings. I know. At least not like one or two of them might be there, but they never, as a group, do live readings like that. So shout out to that whole squad. Shout out to that whole squad. We had uh, Raz uh, Masharamani here on uh, Octavia City, but shout out to uh, Alex Smith, uh, um, More Mother, um, Rashida, uh, the whole uh, uh, Megas Monk. 18? Yeah, 18. The whole the whole crew of Metro Polarity. Um, but they definitely embody the whole spirit of living your life, Afrofuturistic, uh, in an Afrofuturistic uh, bent. Uh, you have Rory Stills, mm-hmm. who you have. You have the music that she presented here. That her work inspired. Yeah. Just to be able to galvanize people towards your 
towards your vision like that. Yeah. Right. It's one thing to galvanize people towards a cause, towards mm-hmm. a goal, towards a mission. Right? right. But to create something and then share it with people and then be so affected to the point where they create something on top of it or because of it or alongside it. It's just like, yeah, a million, just brilliant stuff. And then we introduce someone who I would have thought was already steeped in uh, Afro futurism but really introduced uh lexa gold mm-hmm. into the what afrofuturism really is she really left here well first of all she left here leaving us a breathtaking uh experience when she uh sang her song about Celine, uh, goddess of the moon but she left here just like filled with curiosity of learning more mm. especially since she shared the show with uh charlie brownskin mm-hmm. who is a person who is like the embodiment of what Afrofuturism is in that she lives her life, you know, like every day you're in the future and every mm-hmm. day she is living in the in the future and trying to affect social social change in everything that she does, even just from ra- the way that she raises her three lovely children. Um, it's always a pleasure to have her in the studio and have her whispering in my earbuds. Um, so that was like a big time pleasure of this of Octavia City this year, and some of the the writings that we had in from uh, the real Deshen. Mm-hmm. He, he gave us some fantastic round. We had just a, a he was by the way adorable. Um, trying to submit his story to us, yeah. BT Dubs. I love how high of a regard for for us he has. He sent his story first to contact at blacktriples.com. and I was like, "Wow, that's cool. I wish we had that domain name." Well, we do actually. Oh, do we do? Yeah. Oh snap! Yeah. I wish I had. Okay, well, okay. There's that. Um, but also he was like, "Okay, I gotta say, I'm mad nervous. I uh, I don't, I don't. You guys are like, yeah, I mean, and I just, yeah, I'm saying, I'm nervous. I'm nervous." And I was like, bro, chill. You got this triple con. Don't worry about this. All right, all right, all right, all right. I'm nervous, though. I'm like, stop, stop, stop. And from what I understand, it went really well. I wasn't able to listen to the show. I wasn't even around that night, unfortunately. The story was really dope. That's cool. I'll have to double ch- I'll have to check it out. I could just read it. Or I could listen to Charlie read it. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, listen to Charlie read it. It's, it's, it gives it a whole nother. Oof. Oh. Yeah, yeah. It's really dope. Um, and then the stories that we had here tonight, uh, it's real. it, it, I really w- wish and hope that maybe next year that we are able to even take Octavia City even on a, a larger, grander scale, um, and make it more of a celebration of Afrofuturism and a, a celebration of Octavia Butler. That's why I always like to have Charlie in here because... Octavia Butler is like almost like her spiritual godmother. And she made mm-hmm. sure that the words of Octavia Butler were felt here. She re- had a reading of some of her words here. So that was really cool. Cool. Um, and I really would would love the opportunity to to make Octavia City more of a, of a true festival yeah. type of uh, vibe. You know? I mean, it, it's it needs to be bigger festival level i like the fact that you said that one because of just because you know what i mean just the idea of it but then just a natural progression you know we've been doing it for long enough that it 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 should be bigger and we can definitely make that happen but also because of what afrofuturism is at its core right a lot of people are unfamiliar with with what afrofuturism even is and 
I guess it, it can be boiled down to the establishing of the African diaspora in a future scape, mm-hmm. right? And combating the conditioning that all of us have been subjected to about whether or not that we even have the right to claim a place in this in this space and in this experience and whether or not the, there are black people in the future and, and all of that stuff. And, and this whole movement, you know, that we have been so blessed to contribute to um, is, is built on the backs that, you know, not only do black people have the access to, you know, future scapes and science fiction and, and just existing in a future mindset and whatever, you know, capacity that humanity perceives it to be, but also that we have agency of it, right? We don't have to um, augment ourselves on any level to exist in these spaces. You know, you can be um, who you are and be uh, a scientist going to Umza University, right? You can you can hold on to what it is that makes you unique, even within your Africanism or or your within the diaspora, and and still aspire towards a future. You know, the future that will be that much richer because it encompasses more representation of people, more more different types. Of people and and everything that their their collective experiences and histories can contribute to what a future can be. Well said. Thanks. I was practicing. I had to think it over because I had to explain to a couple people. Sometimes I wore my Afrofuturist affair T-shirt to my ex during league last week, and a couple people were like, "What does that mean?" And uh, I had to explain it to them. I think I, I think I didn't do quite as good job as I did just now, but uh, you know I made the point. And <laughs> <laughs> And I hope that, you know, they're able to to um, to take from that what they will and, and build upon it, because yeah. the, the sooner that all of us can see a future where all of us are able to contribute our uniqueness to making that future bigger and brighter, the sooner that future will get here and then we can work on the next future, whatever that may be. Yeah. You know what I see in the future? And I, I'm, I'm going to be bold. I'm gonna be bold Uh-oh. right now. I'm gonna put this. I'm gonna put that, this out there. Next year for Octavia City. Yes. Right. I think you know that um, the this community of podcasters and creatives that we are blessed to be a part of mm-hmm. On, mm-hmm. online tribe. Yes. Uh, I think, and, and let alone just our own uh, little sub sub you know set of that community called triple nation little okay all right you know i ain't want to big up us dog 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 just because eric ain't here to run his mouth don't mean that we can't big us ourselves up big us up big us ourselves see we we need eric yeah we do (laughs) (laughs) yeah we do he's good at that (laughs) um but i'm gonna put it out i'm gonna put it out there that next year for octavia city like uh i want to do i want our our, our closing event to be an original, mm-hmm. fully formed, fully cast, fully dressed, fully imagined, Afrofuturistic stage drama. You want to do a, a production? I want to do a production. Oh, snap. We should have been talking about this three weeks ago then. I wish. So we can get this to prepping. That's a lot of work. Oh, my a God. A whole production, Lynn. So do you want to do continue to make a literary event leading up to 
this this production or do you want to just do the production? No, I still want to make it a literary oh. event. Because doing it as a literary event and doing it as something that we do here on the show, we can always still do that because we're reaching out to people from online. You know, we've got people submitting stories from New York, to Toronto, mm-hmm, overseas mm-hmm, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So we can always still do that. But while here in the city, I think that we can put together a live, a, a live staged event right here. But we'd have to build. We'd have, we'd have to break boundaries, right? It couldn't be a traditional stage performance, right? We'd have to. It'd have to be done like in the round, like Shakespeare used to put his shows up, so people can can see the actors and the costumes and whatever multimedia stuff we have going on behind them mm-hmm. from all different angles. You're familiar with theater in the round, right? Yes. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. So, much. so do it this way. This way, folks aren't, you know, worrying about breaking a fourth wall. Right. There's, there's more walls there's more dimensions than four so um but that would be cool also if there was more i would like to see more visual art to go along with it and admittedly that was one of the things that we called for this year that we unfortunately didn't get uh the submissions um but it's out there though it's definitely brother mishindo kaumba's work is all afrofuturist of course his his uh shauna leans a a lot of afrofuturism john jennings yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this a, has a, a little a bit more of a, a more of a horror tinge to it, which well, I like personally. But well, some of the stuff, yeah, yeah. I'm creepy. But but he does he does have a lot of Afrofuturistic stuff yeah. uh, as well. Uh, a fool Richardson has, has stepped our toe in there before. So so but, the, but the art only, is there. Yeah, the art is definitely there. So I I would love to see it, especially from all of those creators that that you just listed. Um, but also when I say visual art, I mean like applied visual art one of the most striking memories i have of the afrofuturist ball was seeing people who would have their locks styled in a, in a weird and funky way which was weird and funky to me but it was probably indicative of you know some some ethnic group in in africa somewhere maybe they had it planted in code they so i'm saying right but they would also do cool stuff like you know paint their faces in makeup that yeah. was more traditional for you know a region in Africa than so just something that's completely not at all influenced by this Eurocentric conception of of beauty or, or propriety and all that stuff like just seeing that you know seeing people who were sci-fi heads like me but dressed in or and had their own sci-fi spin on you know traditional African accoutrement was like dag like that just that imagery really affected me like yo we in here too think think if we develop this this production right right that's going to be a a drama or some type of the thing that takes place in this created universe Mm -hmm. right so (gasps) oh my god len i got it i figured it out i figured it out this is what we'll do we'll make We'll actually do like this production, this stage production, right? We'll be a guided tour through Octavia City. We could have this big behind, like uh, a visual thing behind the people that will literally look like we'll have to get an illustrator, <clears throat> Chuck, and and make it look like someone's actually like driving down a street in a city where you can see representations of all these different things that we've tried to bring to light throughout the years that we've done this. And like, actually like, okay, now that we've made this left onto um, Owen Kali Boulevard, we've got the, um, I don't know, Leland Melvin School of Ergonomics where, you know, and just like, 
in, in doing so, it'll give us an opportunity to, to have anecdotes about whatever. We can stop for a story if need be, interact with people on the streets of Octavia City, have them busted up about that time. They did this time warp and ended up with the time lore, but came back because they don't really bang like that or whatever. And just literally put like really literally like establish Octavia City because we've done a really good job of making it exist in our minds. It's been very cerebral yeah, up yeah, until this point. Yeah, so. Yeah actually yeah. getting up a, a, a space and you know the talent and the experience required to build a world that people can literally be in and then it ends with a concert hey octavia city street party yo yo we just figured it out that's it next year 2018 year, it's 2018 lit. it's done it's done son. boom done done get your tickets <laughs> <laughs> we start this gofundme <laughs> yeah indie go go for real, because we ain't throwing that many axes. No. <laughs> I wish. That's a lot of axes. That's a whole lot of axes. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, um, I hope you have enjoyed this month, this year's um, visit to Octavia City. As you've heard, next year's is going to be really something. Um, let us know. Hit us up. Email us at blacktribbles at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter or Facebook at Black Tribbles and let us know what you've thought about uh, Octavia City. Uh, ho hopefully you are moved or a subscriber on iTunes where you can go in. We invite you to go in and leave us a little ranking and rating because that helps people find the show. It sure does. It really, it really, really does. Um, and always you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio. Stitcher Radio. And every place that good podcasts be, including the CLNS Podcast Network, um, com, of course, and streaming live every Thursday night at 9 p.m. on WPP M L P Philadelphia 106.5 FM people powered media where stay tuned because fully baked radio is coming up right next, right after the, the black troubles get baked with the crew of fully baked radio it's going to be real dope next week here on the black tribbles it's time for our annual chilling with the tribbles that's when the whole crew comes down and we kind of like just chill we just no topics no, no point top. we just is we just is so if you got questions or things or thoughts or whatever you've always wanted to bounce at a triple next week is the time to do so all right Ooh. Kennedy. Isn't something cool happening tomorrow at Amal or Saturday at Amalgam? Saturday at Amalgam's is going to be the Hip Hop Discussion Group yep. with the Mayor Triple. The Mayor Triple himself. Coming all the way down from Queens, New York to talk about hip hop. They're talking hip, hip, hop, hop with Randy, the Super Triple and a whole whole slang of, uh, of people. John Morrison from the uh, Serious Rap Eat podcast um doji 13 i think is going to be down there it's going to be a whole crazy at amalgams uh and it's free uh right there at, in the store kicking off at, i think at 5 p.m so that, that'll be a whole lot of fun i know i don't have to work so i will be there i'll be there too hey triples in the house yeah, and i think the after party is at sophista funk I will I'll be there too. Yeah, we know you'll be there. <laughs> I will be there too. For more information, check out the intrawebs. I'm sure all that's there. 
it'd be right there. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have to get out of here um, for Storm Tribble and for the vacationing Spider Tribble, Master Tribble, Super Tribble, and all the Tribbles at sea. For the Tribble Rouser, who's about to jump out of here in the green room, I see her uh, dipping out. Uh, this is the Bat Tribble. In parting, we say... Hailing frequencies closed, Captain. I would like to join the retired actors baseball team. Oh, you would? And I would like to know some of the guys' names on the team, so if I want to play with them, I know them, and I meet them on the street or in the home here, I can say hello to them. Oh, sure. But you know, they give baseball players nowadays very peculiar names. I know, a lot of funny names. You know, like uh, Sticky Stick Fields. Sticky Fields. Uh, Goofy Dan. Booby Barber. Booby Barber. I know all <laughs> this. <laughs> but let's see now. We have on our team, we have who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find then, out, the guy's name. Uh -huh. That's what I want to find out, the guy's name. I'm telling you, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. Now, Abby, you want to be the manager of the baseball team? Yes. You know the guy's names? Well, I should. Well, now you tell me the guy's names on the baseball I team. I say, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. You ain't saying nothing to me yet. Go ahead and tell me. <laughs> I'm telling him. You said nothing yet. Go ahead and tell me. Who's on first? What's on second? I don't know. Is on third. You know the guy's I'll... names on the baseball team? Yes. Well, go ahead. Who's on first? Yes. I mean the guy's name. Who? The guy playing first. Who? The guy playing first base. Who? The guy on first base. Who is on first? Why are you asking me for? I don't know. Now, wait a minute. I'm, not I'm a... asking you who's on first. That's his name. Well, go ahead and tell me. Who? The guy on first. That's it. <laughs> That's his name. Well, you ain't said nothing. I ain't asked you nothing. You did. You know the guy's name on first sure. base? Go ahead and tell me the guy's name on first base. Who? <laughs> the guy playing first base. Who is on first, Lou? What are you asking me for? Now, don't get excited. I'm saying who. I'm asking you a simple question. Who's on first? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. That's it. That's who? <laughs> I'm asking you, what's the guy's name on first oh, base? Oh, no. What's on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? One base at a time. <laughs> don't mix up my I'm story. not mixing up anybody. Now, what's the guy's name on first base? No, what is on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who is on first? I don't know. He's on third. We're not talking. <laughs> Whoa, 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 whoa. How did, I, how did I get on third base? You mentioned his name. I mentioned his name? Yes. I don't know anybody's name on the team. I, how could I mention a guy's name? You did. You just mentioned it. All right. What's the guy's name on third base? No, what's on second? Who's on second? Who's on first? I don't know. He's on first. <laughs> I didn't even mention a guy's name on third base. Yes, you did. Look. All right, then. Who's playing third base? No, who's on first? I'm not asking you what's on first. What's on second? Who's on second? Who's on first? I don't know. He's third base. Third base. Third base. Third base. On a baseball team. You do, you mention their names. I do? Sure. You got an outfield? Well, naturally. The left fielder's name. Why? <laughs> I, I, I just thought I'd ask you. I just thought I'd ask you. Well, I just thought I'd tell you. Well, go ahead. Tell me. Tell you what? The left fielder's name. Why? Because I want to know! Because! Oh, he's center field. You know these players as well who's as Who's in center field? No, who's on first? What's on first? What's on second? I don't know. Third base. <laughs> Do you know the guy's name's on the team? Look, Louis, uh, you don't seem to understand. See, I have a first baseman. You, I know you got a first... He gets his... I ask you, what's, what's the first... I ask you, what's the first baseman's name? No, what's the second baseman's name? I, I'm going to stop asking you, sir. I ask you, what's the first baseman's name? What's the second baseman's name? I don't even get past the first... All right, who's on second? Who's on first? What base do you want to talk about? You talk about anyone you want to talk about. All right, now, who's on first? Right. Okay. No, 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 no. All right, you got a first baseman. Yes. When you pay off the first baseman every month, who gets the money? Every dollar of it. Every dollar of it. Who gets it? He does. 
Sometimes his wife comes down and collects it. Whose wife? Yes. <laughs> Why not, Lou? He's earned it. Who did? Yes. <laughs> Look, will you pay off the first baseman ring once? You get a receipt from the guy? Sure. How does he sign his name? Who? The guy you give the money to. Who? The guy you give the money to. <laughs> Well, that's how he signs it. That's look. how who signs it? Yes. Who do I come? That's it. Who? <laughs> look, you go to first base. Yes. And you say to him, here's your money, sign the receipt. How does he sign his name? Who? The guy you give the money to. That's how he signs it. That's how who signs it? Yes. Sure. <laughs> you gotta get a receipt from the guy, don't you? Get one, Lou. How does the guy on first base sign his name? Who? The guy on first. That's how he signs it. I'm asking. When you give the guy the money, what's the guy's name that you give the money to? Now, wait a minute. What signs his own? Who signs his own? No, who signs his? <laughs> I mean, what's the guy's name on first you give what the... What is on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? I don't know. Third base. <laughs> the fielder's name, the center field. I don't know. You got a pitcher on a team? Well, this be a fine team without a pitcher. It's a fine team without a The pitcher's name. Tomorrow. Uh, you know, I, can't, I, I can't change that name. You don't want to tell me today? I'm telling you. Go ahead, tell me the pitcher's name. Tomorrow. <laughs> Why not tell me today? I am going to tomorrow. Tomorrow. Then tell me the pitcher's name. Tomorrow. All right, what time tomorrow you tell me the pitcher's name? What time what? What time tomorrow you going to tell me who's pitching? Who is not pitching? I'll break you around, you see who's on first. I want to know what's the pitcher's name. What's on second? I don't know. Third base, third base. Third base. You got a catcher? <laughs> Certainly you've got a catcher on a baseball team. Catcher's name? Today. Today. Tomorrow's pitching, today's catcher. Now you've got it. Now I got it. All I got, we got a couple of days on the team, that's I all. I can't help that, Lou. I don't You know, I'm, I'm a pretty good catcher myself. And so they tell me. Yeah, now I get behind the plate and I'm going to do some fancy catching and tomorrow's pitching on my team, right? Yeah. Now tomorrow he winds up the ball and I'm behind the plate and the heavy hitter gets up. Now, the heavy hitter gets up and, he, and he's ready to hit the ball, and tomorrow's going to throw the ball. I'm the catcher. Now, when the tomorrow throws the ball, the guy up bunched the ball. Now, when he bunched the ball, me being a good catcher, I want to throw the guy out of first base, so I pick up the ball and throw it to who? Now, that's the first thing you've said right. I don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, that's all you have to do. Is to throw the ball at first base. Yes. Now, who's got it? Naturally. Sure. <laughs> Look, the guy is running at first base, yeah. and I want to throw the guy out. So? So I throw the ball to who? Naturally. Throw it to who? Naturally. And who's got it? Natural. Huh. So I pick up the ball and I throw it to Natural. No, no, no. <laughs> you throw the ball to first base, then who gets it? Naturally. That's it. Now you're sure, same thing. Right. I pick up the ball, so I throw it to Natural. You don't. I throw it to who? Natural. That's what I'm saying! I say I throw the ball to who? Naturally. You ask me. You throw the ball to who? Naturally. Same as you! Say it that I throw the ball to Natural. You don't. You throw it to who? Now who's got it? Naturally. That's what I said. Whoever it is better get it. That's all I can Don't worry about who. Who get it? Yes. He better get it. All right. Now, I throw the ball to who. Whoever it is drops the ball so the guy runs a second. Who picks up the ball and throws the what? What throws it? I don't know. I don't know. Throws it back to tomorrow. Triple play. Could be. Another guy gets up and it's a long fly ball to be cause. Why? I don't know. He's on third and I don't give a darn. I said, I don't give a darn. Oh, that's our shortstop. I mean, he didn't. <laughs> 